0: To the silver screen. Welcome back, listeners, to the fifth installment in my Superman movie review series. Today I am reviewing Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. This is your host, Corbin. And if you're saying, wait a minute, this is the fifth installment but the fourth Superman film, well, last week I reviewed Supergirl, which had come out about two and a half years prior to this one. I have that review already up. I have your guide to Supergirl if you want to know why there was a four-year gap between Superman 3 and 4. And even your guide to Superman 4, that came out last week. That goes into the production of the film. Why, spoiler alert, this was a big box office bomb. Critics, audiences hated this movie. And yeah, that's why I'm here is to, to look back decades later and see is superman 4 really that bad so all of that can be found in the description below of course there's timestamps down there if you're ready to jump straight into the review all kinds of goodies down there you're not going to want to miss well i did tell you listeners um last week with a supergirl review that i would check out the first episode of the cw series as far as i know that's the first supergirl content we got after the failure of the first movie I couldn't get through the first episode. I watched about the first five minutes. I watched her do a fight sequence at the end. It was cool to see um, Dean Cain as her father, who was Superman in the Superman, the lowest TV show. And also Helen Slater was playing her mom. And it provided a much more logical opening as to why Kara Zor-El came to Earth and why she's. Technically older, but younger than Superman, and I could see a lot of people probably enjoying it. It's just not for me. Clearly, it was very popular, and hopefully it got a lot better, but I couldn't get into any of those uh, CW DC shows. The Supergirl TV show really wasn't for me. It felt very much Hallmark-ish in its plotting, but I can see some people enjoying it, and I'm sure it got a lot better as the years went on. It's back in 1987, and I had seen the previous three Superman films. I even gave Shup- Supergirl a shot. I would be genuinely surprised to see they're making another one because it had, like I said, it had been four years since Superman 4. Typically, that means the franchise is in trouble, and there's typically not going to be a sequel if it's going to be that long. I would be surprised. This trailer looks okay. It's not a compelling trailer, and there's not enough here to get me in theaters, especially once I heard how it did opening weekend and that it was panned by critics. I would definitely have rented this movie, though, because by this point, VHS and rental stores had become enough of a thing. It gave me the opportunity. It gave me a choice to not go see this in theaters, to not go waste my time and money if... I wanted to probably pay a cheaper price for one rental and I could watch it with my wife that way or watch it with my family. And if it's not great, I could shut it off. I could pause it. I could do whatever. And I think that's probably the right opportunity for this movie. So, and especially based on opening weekend numbers, five million bucks is pretty embarrassing, especially in 1987 for the fourth Superman movie. Very, very few people went to go see it. There was a pretty small fraction of people seeing this movie. And I should say for this review, it's my first time seeing it. I knew really nothing about this movie except Nuclear Man was the main villain Superman fought. A couple things that I noticed going into this movie was one, Warner Brothers was back. That You see that in the opening credits. I talk about that in your Guide to Superman 4 John Williams, I don't know if he necessarily composed anything new. I I think he may have done a little bit of some new stuff, but mainly what happened was Alexander Courage adapted Williams' old music from Superman 1 and 2. And then he essentially conducted the music. John Williams composed it. So I don't even think there was really new compositions for this movie, which is... Probably a bad sign. Um, we know they couldn't really pay a whole lot. But Christopher Reeve did have story input. This whole idea of nuclear disarmament really was his idea, actually. And on my Blu-ray disc, there's a weird 50th uh, Superman anniversary documentary hosted by none other than Dana Carvey, who is the chief historian of the Junior Superman of America. It's a spoof documentary. It's kind of weird to watch, but thought I'd bring that up in case anybody's interested in that. Well, listeners, if you don't want Superman 4 spoiled for you, it is readily available. It's on HBO Max. It's available to buy on physical and digital media. So go ahead and click pause right now. Go watch the film, then come back and click play here on the podcast, and we'll be ready to talk about it. Superman, frustrated with the lack of world peace, decides to heed the plea of grade schooler Jeremy to remove all nuclear weapons from the Earth. Meanwhile, Lex Luthor, prized by Gene Hackman, decides to create Nuclear Man, a monstrosity born from the hair of Superman's head and a radiation of the sun. There's also a worthless subplot of Lois still in love with Superman and Lacey Warfield in love with Clark Kent. Oh yeah, Lacey's father, David, has taken over the Daily Planet, but Perry White commits a hostile takeover to win the paperback at the end of the movie. And hooray, they did it. Of course, the two super beings battle it out, but a scratch from Nuclear Man renders Clark helpless. Thanks to the power of the green crystal found in his old spaceship, it saves his life, which I'm pretty sure he's used up at least twice before. For some reason, Nuclear Man falls in love with Lacey. He kidnaps her, but Superman promptly saves her, at least in the theatrical cut. We'll talk about it. In order to defeat the villain, Superman pushes the moon in front of the sun, which I'm pretty sure would destroy the Earth. Anyways, rendering Nuclear Man useless, so Superman drops him into a nuclear silo to power cities for years to come. Superman gives a speech on wishing for world peace as he flies across the earth as credits roll. First, let's talk about the opening of the movie. Before we get into good or bad, let's just take a moment to check out the opening because the opening has been important, I would say, for every Superman film. The credits for this movie, and I'm not just the only one that holds this opinion, you pretty much ask anyone, this looks really cheap. This looks like something they would eventually just put on VHS or put straight to TV it's not promising and I'm very worried based on these opening credits, how cheaply they're drawn onto the screen and how they kind of zip around in this ugly VHS 90s way. And of course, the lesson and, you know, foreshadowing we're supposed to take from this is that Superman loves all of humanity. He has no enemies and he wants all of us to get along. Well, he then returns to his old Smallville farm, which I thought was a curious choice. He did return to Smallville in Superman 3. We had no footage of him on the farm. We just got a dropped line that his mother had passed away. Would have been nice if he would have visited her grave, maybe. But that's not the vibes they were putting off in Superman 3. They are retconning his biological mother's voice instead of his father's voice. As he remembers... Or maybe as it truly plays over, I don't know. On his journey to Earth, he goes and finds his old spaceship that's been sitting there forever. The farm is up for sale. Clark is ready to move on. He doesn't want it to be taken over by some shopping mall, which I don't think there's any worry about that for Pete's sake. I mean, he's out in the middle of nowhere. But he does nevertheless play baseball with Mr. Hornsby, who is their real estate agent, and kind of have this weird reminiscent moment. Of father and son. It's it's really dumb. This leads me to believe. Will the Ma and Pa Kent farm ever come back into the plot? The answer only in passing in a deleted scene at the very end of the film, which I'll talk about later. So that's really how Superman opens. It opens with him saving some Russians, going back to his roots, completely ignoring his roots for the rest of the film. And then we jump into Gene Hackman. I was truly shocked to see Gene Hackman back in this film, and I saw from the opening credits Margot Kidder was back. Now, she had about maybe, maybe five minutes of on-screen time in the third film. They completely pushed her out, but nevertheless, she's back and Hackman is back in a significant portion of this film. Unfortunately, his plot revolves around nuclear missiles, once again, going back to that first movie. This time, he wants to make a nuclear-powered Superman to defeat, well, Superman. And that's really his only motivation as far as the theatrical cut goes. Now, there is some deleted footage where he pits the Soviet and U.S. against each other, ups the stakes a little bit more, makes him more of less of a one-dimensional character this way. Of course, this film is continually trying to harken back to that Donner film in numerous ways. Um, Superman saves Lois on a subway and he says the subway system is the most reliable means of public transportation. That is talking about the flying from Superman one. And I believe that line will be repeated in Superman returns. Now I did laugh out loud actually at some of this stuff. Um, And this was actually meant to be played for laughs. Clark sees Lacey Warfield posing herself on her desk because she's just uh, over the moon about him. She's just so starry eyed. Clark Kent is such a hunk and she's, literally laying on her desk in kind of a seductive pose, which I found to be utterly ridiculous. And uh, Clark's expression is really what cracked me up. Christopher Reeve, as always, is a class act when it comes to these movies. And that's the thing, that's probably the biggest takeaway from this whole Reeve saga that I've gone through. Unfortunately, Reeve has been better than the material. The material has really never been able to live up to him I would say his strongest performance was Superman 1, maybe Superman 2, Donner Cut. That really could have been something special. I really like what's there, but if it really could have been the vision we got. I think this there was just too many hands in the pie, and a lot is to blame at the feet of the Salkins. They really messed up this franchise, I think. Unfortunately... We'll just never get that awesome Superman movie, I think, that that could have been with Reeve as Superman. It, it's really sad and unfortunate, but for, with what he's given, I think he does a very good job in this film. And he's really the only reason to come back to this, is to see him you know, play Superman once again. And it should be noted, at this point, it was... Including the probably the pre-production for the first movie, it had been ten years since he had been cast as Superman. He'd done a, other different projects since then, but this would be his last outing. I actually do really like Marielle Hemingway. She was Oscar-nominated for a Woody Allen film called Manhattan, which had come out. I think it's maybe in '77. It had been about almost ten years, at least ten years. Um, I could be wrong on that. Nevertheless, she's not given enough to do. She's not really given much of a point here except to provide maybe a little bit of romantic intrigue, but also just a little bit more interest for Clark to play off of because Lois is just, you know, still head over heels for Superman. Now, of course, another cheesy line I have to bring up. I have no idea. To me, this seems more of an in-joke or more of a homage in some ways. In Superman 2, there's the incredibly hokey line that even my wife laughed out loud at when Zod is throwing a bus full of people at him and he yells, Stop, don't do it, the people. He says that exact same line in the most hilarious way possible. I have to believe it's played for laughs. It's pretty funny. Unfortunately, that's where my positives run out for this movie. I really don't have any more compliments. The thing that I was disappointed about, really, is so far there is no continuity between Superman 3 and 4 or any of the previous films. Superman 1 and 2 are mostly a duology. 3 is its own standalone thing. Superman 4 is does tie back into Superman 1 with certain things, but nevertheless, it doesn't pick up any plot threads from Superman 3, which seems strange to me. The strangest one is Lana Lang is nowhere to be seen. She was a major character in 3. She has completely disappeared. I don't even think there's a mention of her in this one, which I guess in some ways, you could watch most of these movies by themselves and because they, they have almost no continuity between each other. I was disappointed because Supergirl in the beginning of that film is mentioned. Superman is off planet on a peacekeeping mission that has nothing to do with this movie. Um, Unless they're talking about him being off planet, taking these, you know, nuclear bombs out into space. Maybe that's what they're talking about. I'm not sure. But it's not really brought up or con- contiguized, which I was disappointed with. There's also quite a bit of Clark Kent antics in this film. Um, the only time I think it really works is when he's on a double date with Lois Lane and Miss um, War- Warfield, and- which is a terrible last name. It feels very on the nose. And he's having to go back and forth between Superman and Kent. That was pretty fun, but he is a crazy big klutz in this movie. It- too too much so. It- it's really annoying. I had no idea this was nominated for Worst Visual Effects from the Razzies but it is obvious to see the flying effects aren't any better in fact with each sequel they just continue to get worse so these visual effects are absolutely horrible maybe maybe a slight step up from three but it's just sad to see in 10 years the effects have actually gotten worse. Circling back to Lex Luthor he shows us that we're in a cartoon. Right off the bat his nephew Rex who has gone on to become a somewhat famous actor, I suppose it's the guy from pretty in pink, the friend from pretty in pink that came out here before he's kind of a fun presence here. Um, I called him Rex. I, I guess maybe his name's Lenny. I thought it was Rex anyways. Um, He talks like a Ninja turtle. He is a really goofy character. And the way that Luthor is broken out of his rock quarry is utterly ridiculous. This is, I would say infantile, definitely made for children. So I think if you saw this as a kid, you'd probably go on to enjoy it because it's pretty low stakes and pretty goofy. There are there is some pretty boring stuff here and some weird stuff and definitely a lot of proselytizing going on about a uh, world peace. Um, it, it's only made worse in the deleted scenes, which we'll talk about later. All right, let's talk about Margot Kidder. She is back as Lois Lane. Her voice is really deep and her face continues to look really weird. She just looks really unhealthy. She was struggling a lot with drug addiction and mental illness at this time. It's a really sad story. Um, She would go on after this to to have a pretty serious breakdown. She, I I don't know why she's really in this film, and Jimmy Olsen is back, and Perry White. They're given next to nothing to do once again, and there's no talk of her sister, Lucy Lane. you think they could have brought over some continuity. Clearly, they didn't want anybody thinking about Supergirl, and they really wanted to get out from under that, but... Lois is back. She does next to nothing. Her one major scene in this movie is a shocking recreation of Can You Read My Mind from the first film. Clark decides to reveal himself to Lois once again. And in the original cut, Lois has a lot more flying by herself. She does fly by herself in this. It seems very dreamlike, but it is very real. Lois does admit that she remembers everything. Um, she, cause Clark said, you know, you, you forgot. And she said, actually, I've remembered everything. Well, he does the amnesia kiss on her again. So she forgets again. <laughs> and it seems to be taking, <laughs> taking a toll on her mentally. Um, I know a lot of people are pretty angered by this, like legitimately angered. And I got to say, I'm one of them. This to me feels emotionally and mentally abusive for Superman to use Lois to have these you know quick fantasies with her and then anytime he wants to kiss someone he can just erase their memory it's just honestly bizarre um to me it seems like i'm almost not even watching a real movie at this point because to me this seems like this bizarre you know dreamlike be made up type movie like something you would go to bed After watching a good Superman movie, and you'd have a dream about, and it's just kind of this bad made-up movie. This is like a bad dream come to life, honestly. So he doesn't treat Lois right in this movie. It's very disappointing. We also get this hokey classroom sequence that looks like it's something straight out of a Rankin and Bass Christmas TV special, where they even mention writing a letter to Santa Claus to, you know, bring about world peace. And of course, we get Jeremy, this husky-voiced child who writes Superman, and he goes to visit the New York or try and get Superman's attention, and you know Clark feels like he doesn't have the full res- you know power to do that. But you know what, he does it. This is the point when I realize the plot hinges on Superman being guilted by a child into destroying all of the world's nukes. It is such a like I said a infantile fantasy. I'm just shocked. This is the story they came up with. Somehow the Fortress of Solitude is still intact. I guess it wasn't destroyed in the theatrical cut. Um, That's how they got around it with Superman 2. His mother says to use this green crystal or something to listen to the advice of the elders. That is ridiculous considering the elders are the ones that got the whole planet annihilated in the first place because they wouldn't listen to Jor-El. So, terrible advice once again. Of course, Superman can't ever figure out anything for himself in all these movies. It's fine to ask advice, but, I mean, he can't make any decision for himself. Now we get to the real farcical sequence of the movie. Superman going to speak at the United Nations. He walks with Jeremy. He walks with the whole, you know, crowd of the world um jeremy who also becomes a forgotten plot in this movie he does return a deleted scene uh, we'll talk about that later superman is unilaterally making the decision to go into sovereign countries and take their private property also their means of defending each, each themselves and the entire un applauds stands up shouts yay and claps it is complete and utter nonsense that would never ever happen i laughed out loud it's just crazy how happy they are that Superman is doing this. Um, I don't know. It feels very communistic to me. It feels very uh, authoritarian of Superman to do all of this stuff. Um, I liked it better in X-Men Apocalypse. Maybe that's a bit of an homage to this where Apocalypse takes all of the nukes and destroys them. Well, I haven't really talked much about action in this movie, and it's because, once again, it's kind of backloaded onto this plot. This plot is too busy. Trying to be goofy, but serious. But then we finally get some action and we get the Superman versus Nuclear Man fight sequence. It is entirely overwhelming with, of course, horrible visual effects. Nuclear Man's here to just cause a lot of mischief that Superman has to clean up, like destroying the Great Wall. But Superman is able to rebuild it. Also, I was worried that Superman's confrontation with Lex Luthor happens an hour into the film, and this is only a 90-minute movie. I'm worried it's coming too late, but I come to find out these last 30 minutes drag on, and it feels like this movie will never end. So that green crystal that Superman does take from his parents' farm in the beginning does come back into play as his means of healing himself. It's kind of like... You know, his last life token in a video game He has one life left to use and it brings him back to life because nuclear man used his nuclear nails to scratch him on the back of the neck and he was getting radiation poisoning. Well, this heals him. Of course, Superman's trick is to trick nuclear man into an elevator, lock the elevator, fly him to the dark side of the moon, and I guess just leave him there forever. Unfortunately, when Superman is on the moon, you can see the black curtains. You can see the wires throughout this movie. It looks like they're on cheapo sets. This looks like some really homemade crock that is really not good. Also, Nuclear Man plays whack-a-mole Superman into the moon. And as I mentioned in the plot, Superman pushing the moon like that, I'm pretty sure would disrupt the tide and probably cause some pretty horrific tsunamis is my guess. I'm not a expert on any of that. I've just heard... The Moon has to do with the tide, and if, you, if the Moon is ever messed with, it's, it's going to be bad. Um, of course, we're eschewing all logic at this point, because nuclear man, after he's buried, you know, punched him into the Earth like a garden gnome, nuclear man gets lacy and flies her up into space without oxygen or any kind of suit, and she's completely fine. Which begs the question: Why do the astronauts, or excuse me, the cosmonauts in the beginning of the film? Why do they need protection, when clearly nobody needs it? Well, this brings us to the ending of the movie. Mr. White has this hostile takeover, which is hokey as can be. Jimmy and Lois hug and shout, we did it. That's what they literally shout. Nuclear Man is just dropped into a silo. And I guess he just powers some cities for a while. There's another really dumb speech by Superman, realizing he's wrong. The world's got to figure it out for themselves. Okay, I don't know how I came to that conclusion. Um, the deleted scenes do help us understand that better because Lex pits the U.S. and the USSR against each other into nearly nuclear annihilation. And, of course, that's pretty much lost in the theatrical cut, so it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Superman drops Lenny, the nephew, back at the Catholic Boys Town, is what it's called. And, of course, there's some uplifting message there. I suppose it's pretty dumb and we have to replay the ending of the first film. He drops Lex Luthor back in the rock quarry, and Superman gives us a little good versus evil speech, and he flies off across the world with the sun behind him, which is recreating the ending of at least the first two movies. Lacey is not given any closure whatsoever in the theatrical cut. I don't know why she's flown up into space by nuclear man, but Superman does save her, and in... And an animated shot, it's not even real. Superman just flies you back to Earth, and we never see her again. That's how the movie ends. It's entirely underwhelming. You're ready to get out of your theater seat as quickly as possible. I was ready to hit stop. And yeah, that's that's it. So before I get to the conclusion, let's talk about deleted scenes. There's 31 minutes on my desk of deleted material. There's apparently if not 15 minutes more, 45 minutes more of completely deleted footage, which would have been the basis for Superman 5. We'll talk about that here at the end. A lot of the deleted scenes don't make any sense or they're inconsequential. The biggest one that I think will shock a lot of people is Lex Luthor's first creation is not Nuclear Man. It's actually a goofy kind of Frankensteinian style monster of a person a lot of people say that's bizarro um it's a significant amount they even have a fight between superman and i'm just going to go ahead and call him bizarro it's a major cut subplot um it's done a lot like a silent picture it's really silly i'm glad it's not there um but yeah before nuclear man came this bizarro figure Lacey did get more to do in the ending of the original cut of the film Lacey. Superman uses Lacey as bait um, to he drops her essentially over the Pacific Ocean, knowing that Nuclear Man would let her fall to her death. He would want to save her. Superman is able to capture Nuclear Man and save Lacey at the same time. It at least provides more stakes because when Nuclear Man kidnaps Lacey, he doesn't take her into outer space like the theatrical cut depicts. He takes her to Lex Luthor's apartment. I'm not really sure what she does there, but there's at least a bit more going on. It at least flows a little bit better. And of course, Lacey and Clark f- do actually get their proper send off. Um, she's just like, Hey, you know, I know I'm not the right woman for you. I wish I was. I, I'm trying so hard. And of course, Clark is just kicking her to the curb. Clark actually suggests that she go by the Kent homestead back in Kansas, in Smallville, Kansas. And she does, uh, we're, we're to assume that she does go do that. Now there is an alternate ending. Actually. Um, Jeremy is brought back at the end of the movie where Superman takes Jeremy and he flies him off into space. Once again, no suit. He's perfectly fine somehow. And he says, Jeremy, what do you see? Jeremy says, I realize there's no border, just one world. And, of course, we get this really preachy ending where a child can realize we should just all live in peace as one people. And, yeah, Superman apparently dumps him back down on Earth and says, You know what? You and me, Jeremy, we can see how this world can be united. Hopefully someday they will, too. It's an awful ending. At least it gives closure to Jeremy's character. But nevertheless, it's pretty dumb. Superman 4 is an admirable but mistaken film. It's sad to see this once great well, at least the first film was great, concept fall so far. Maybe if you saw this as a child, you'd have some nostalgia for it, but as an adult, there's nothing really here to enjoy. You can tell the budget is incredibly cheap, and the plot is hokey. At least it's a fairly inoffensive 90 minutes. I'm sad to see Reeve and the rest of the cast go out on this note. It's not what they deserved. Superman 4 The Quest for Peace receives 2 stars out of 10 with a strong not recommend. I personally would not add this one to my collection. Um, It's nice. I got it in a bundle, so I don't really have to worry about owning individual titles, but this is one I really wouldn't seek out. Well, what are my rankings for the Superman films? Well, it should come as no surprise. Superman, the movie, is my number one pick. Superman 2, the Richard Donner cut, comes in second. I'm actually putting Supergirl number three. I think that movie's a lot of fun. Superman 3 comes in at number four. I will say... This movie is probably more watchable than Superman 3. I think Superman 3 feels a bit more professional. It feels tighter. It's too long, though, and there's not enough action. Superman 2, the theatrical cut coming in at number 5, I didn't like that movie at all. And then finally, this one is my last one. It's not the end of my series, though, but just to rank off the Reeve films, uh, that's where my ranking falls. Uh, this one is dead last. I am going to give you three other movie recommendations from 1987. These are my three favorite movies that came out that year. Predator, The Untouchables, and The Lost Boys. And I'll give an honorable mention to The Princess Bride. That movie is wonderful. Definitely check those movies out if you haven't seen those already. Those are a lot of fun and way better than this movie. Before the failure of Superman 4, Canon Films did consider producing a fifth film with Albert Pune directing. Of course, Canon's bankruptcy resulted in the film rights reverting back to the Salkins, believe it or not. Of course, they really didn't want anything to do with the series after this. There is rumors going around that the story for Superman 5 would have had him dying and resurrecting. Uh, Of course, this actually was a storyline before the death of Superman, which would become a highly popular Flashpoint comic in American culture. Also, as I mentioned earlier, there was enough deleted material that Canon said, we don't really have much of a budget for Superman 5, but we are going to use that deleted material and incorporate that into a fifth film, which is pretty shocking. Of course, there was the tragic accident of Reeves in 1995 falling off a horse paralyzing him and of course that means he would never be able to play superman ever again now there were a number of sequel ideas that were tossed around many years later the series lay dormant nobody really wanted to talk about it or even touch it for quite a while but there was a lot of superman movies that just didn't get off the ground until brian singer finally got it done with warner brothers in the 2006. Superman Returns, which is actually a somewhat of a sequel to these films. We'll talk about that in a few weeks, but it would be 19 years until we did get another official Superman film. So what are we talking about next week? Well, Steel with Shaq. Believe it or not, this is sort of a Superman film. Steel is a character from the comics and they cast Shaq as him. So it's kind of a one-off spin-off type Superman film. I've never seen it. I've just heard. I've seen Chris Stuckman's Hilariosity over it, which is great. Definitely check that out. But I'm curious to finally get to watch this movie and really see how hilarious it really is. Well, listeners, the question after the show, is Superman for the worst of the Reeve-verse? Yeah, that's what I'm calling it, the Reeve-verse. I'm going to say it definitely is, unfortunately. Unfortunately, just looking at my scores across the board for all of these films. I'm it's an average of four out of 10, which in my book is a solid not recommend. I would even say maybe a strong not recommend for all of these. I've only recommended the first one and the Richard Donner cut of the second film. Everything else I think has been pretty horrible, unfortunately. Well, now I finally know how bad these Superman movies are, and now you finally know too, listeners. So thank you for coming along with me on my review of Superman for the Quest for Peace. Hopefully um, we can have some fun with Shaq next weekend. We're going to find out, so make sure to subscribe to the podcast before then so you won't miss that review. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for coming along with me, and we'll see you next week with Steel. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide. Of course, the film is entirely heavy-handed with the opening plot point here where Superman saves a Russian cosmonaut. And of course, we're supposed to learn... Ugh, there's an airplane. End of sequ- Man, that plane just needs to go away. Go away. It's going to fly forever. Endless fuel.